Welcome to What Does Good Look Like, the podcast that brings you healthy care experts with unique insights into what good looks like and what you can do to get there. I'm Anna and I'm co-hosting this podcast together with Will. In this episode, uh, we were actually going to do something that we planned to do in January, which is to talk about our predictions for the next 10 to 20 years. We wrote them down, but we never actually got around to recording the episode. Uh, And we're looking through it now, and we think now is a good time to do it. And I think what's good is even post-COVID, can we say post-COVID? Even (laughs) during (laughs) during COVID, uh, we can say that uh, everything we wrote down, we would still stand by. In fact, it will accelerate some aspects of this, but but they don't fundamentally change. Uh, And if you haven't heard the drum that we keep beating when we keep saying healthy care, our big prediction for the next 10 to 20 years is that this area of the market will develop. Uh, and I'll define that. So healthy care, uh, what are the products and services that you use when you're not sick, basically, to stay healthy? And we think that there's going to be many more aspects around measuring functional decline and trying to slow down the pace. And that should have quite a big impact on reducing the incidence of chronic disease, um, because it seems most of these chronic diseases are age related. So if you can if you can slow them down, you can, in essence, prevent them. Well, maybe not prevent, but at least shorten the, shorten the period in which you're sick. So, so I'll just reiterate, our big prediction is that there's going to be this area of the market called healthy care. And we'll go a little bit more into how different aspects of this market will develop in the next 10 to 20 years. And the first topic that I wanted to address is something that we call data rich, but information poor. And with the digitalization of healthcare, we're seeing an enormous amount of health data. But the question is, of course, what are we going to do with it? And this is a topic that we've covered with earlier guests in this podcast. So, for instance, Dr. Paul Wicks in season one. With the digitalization of healthcare, it's become easier to access your own medical records and connected wearables help us generate all kinds of health data about how we sleep, how many steps per day we walk or how many hours a day we just sat on our ass. But this hasn't really changed much yet, at least. Uh, because just making this information digital and collect it in itself doesn't fundamentally change the nature of how you interact with it. And one interesting example of digitalization in healthcare is telemedicine, which is basically a doctor's appointment over video, usually through a smartphone app, rather than physically visiting your doctor at the clinic. And this certainly has benefits like easier access and the fact that you don't have to go to a place full of other sick people. But the visit itself is basically a limited version of a traditional clinic visit. Um, And I say limited version because there are certain procedures they can't perform or certain tests they can't perform because you're not there. So you can't really offer the full range of options that you can do in a physical or face-to-face clinic visit. Um, So the product or service, which in this case is a healthcare visit, is quite similar, but it just sort of comes with a better packaging, which would be that easier access, etc. And I think what we've seen is that telemedicine has really exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it was only going to be a matter of time anyway, before this picked up traction. But I think the really interesting aspect here is about how this will evolve over time um so i don't know will do you have any thoughts about what's going to happen with telemedicine 
over the future, let's say 10 years from now or so, do you have any thoughts on what we what we may see? Will it still be still be here? Will telemedicine still be here in 10 years time? No, <laughs> we'll go back to digital. We'll go back to physical visits for everything. No, uh, obviously telemedicine is going to be here to stay. Uh, you can see the market at the moment that there are many different actors. It's hard to differentiate. Uh, consumers don't really know brands, which I think is quite interesting. They just know that they can have a digital visit and it's more convenient. I mean, the early adopter groups were probably parents with kids Um and it fulfills a real need at the moment, particularly for reassurance, which is one of the major reasons people go to the doctor in the first place. Uh, you're worried about something and you need someone to tell you it's going to be okay or if it's not going to be okay, these are the things we can do about it. But to make it much more useful, I think they're going to have to collect wider data sets because as you said, if you have access to your medical record now, it may be exciting that you have access to it, probably not for most people, <laughs> but, uh, but there's very limited things that you can actually do with it unless you have some disease that you want to share with a for a second opinion or a third opinion. So I think um, what we're going to see is you're starting to see digiphysical. So you're seeing a lot of telemedicine platforms start to open up their own uh, consumer experiences, so to say. Uh, so I know in Sweden, Cree, which in the UK is called Livy, is opening physical locations. I assume Babylon will probably end up doing it at some point. Uh, you see Dr.se in Sweden again doing the same thing. And I suppose what they're going to try and do is make it a, a much more pleasant experience to visit the doctor. But I don't feel that that fundamentally changes your own experience. I think to actually take it to the next level, you're going to have to start measuring things that you wouldn't normally associate with your general practitioner at the moment. And we'll talk a little bit about that yeah. soon. But that's interesting. So it's not just that the traditional physical clinics offer telemedicine services but actually telemedicine actors start offering physical locations yeah so it, it's clear that that human interaction is probably still important to some degree well the human interaction is important but maybe what we'll start to move towards is uh, i remember a friend of mine from hong kong how she talked about how she interacted with doctors in hong kong And that was, you would actually go and see a doctor if you were, I would like to have a baby in a year, a year and a half. What should I be doing now? Mm. So you're starting to plan a future rather than coming to them with a, a real problem. And what's interesting is for some of the brands that are coming out now in healthcare, so some of the big brands like um, uh, there's a fertility brand. Modern Fertility. Modern Fertility. You know, that's um, their big punch as you go onto their website is want kids one day. You know, so this yeah. is planning for a future rather than just, I have a problem, uh, I'm infertile or I want to test my fertility. And you can do that through them, but they're they're taking a step towards planning. Yeah, I'm, I think this is really important. I think this is going to be part of it. Right now, I think most interactions with healthcare are being very transactional in nature. You And it's very active. You have a problem and you go to get help once the problem has already occurred. But maybe over time, you can build more continuous interactions. And through this health data that you're gathering, even be able to spot trends in the wrong direction before that problem has even occurred. I mean, we talked a lot about, for instance, diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, hmm. where you're often pre-diabetic for quite a long time. So you can potentially measure and capture those things earlier. I don't think... 10 years from now like telemedicine will be a thing like it would just be part of how 
health and healthcare is being managed, that you will have that opportunity. And I still think the human interaction and that relationship is important, but maybe moving into what I think about as virtual medicine. And what I mean by that is there may not necessarily be as many physical clinics or locations as there are now, but you would actually be able to have your doctor interactions more through, for instance, telemedicine. And you could complement that with home diagnostics. So you could have wearables that were being better integrated. For instance, maybe a standardized approved thermometer that you could use and you would be able to, to generate part okay. of your own health data. So, uh, so oh, I think you've talked about this before. So what you imagine is if you sign up to a telemedicine platform, uh, what they're going to do is you're going to actually in the post, you'll get delivered a package which will have wearables, some relevant wearables in it. I, I guess we've talked about this before, things like a, a particularly during COVID, something called a, a pulse oximeter. So you can measure your own O2 saturation, uh, which gives you a pretty good indication of actually you should be going to the hospital or something is wrong here. Uh, you'll have thermometers, as you say. You'll probably have things like blood pressure measurements. Yeah, especially if you've got hypertension, maybe yeah. depending on what diagnosis you have, you may have different things. So Continuous glucose monitor. I mean, we've tested that ourselves, haven't we? Both on ourselves, but also on, on people we know who are type 2 diabetic. And these things are, you know, a, a step change away from taking some medication. They're just in, they have an enormous impact on the immediate behavior for an individual. So I think there's uh, that's definitely true. You know, telemedicine will have to start implementing some of these physical devices that they send out. Uh, what I think you're also seeing is probably behind the scenes. Uh, I imagine you know they've got a lot of smart people at these te- some of these telemedicine platforms. And I think they're splitting into two separate things. One is just we're going to provide you with the infrastructure to offer telemedicine, so you know a better Zoom in essence. Uh, but then there are other groups, and I think Livy Cree is probably in this corner where they're actually trying to build a whole doctor's interface to start producing. I wouldn't be surprised if they're starting to produce some kind of healthy care measurements. Uh, not not at the moment because mm. I've used the app and you don't get it, but I imagine that's where they're, they're going to head towards. Yeah. And of course you could complement the uh, sort of the digital therapeutics with things like going to your nearest pharmacy to have your blood test taken, things like that. So you could complement with, with a lot of these things. Um, well, we saw that, well. didn't we? Uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, so, you know, our background is we built a company before um, where we've offered consumer blood testing. So our access to the government's infrastructure for blood testing um, with doctor's tools to uh, give you results. And it was so much more convenient for users. It gave, uh, and the people that used it, now I think they've done over 100,000, uh, they typically didn't have a chronic disease. So individual consumer behavior is moving towards this sort of thing yeah exactly i guess also i suppose this is a given as well but the increase in digital therapeutics so for instance you could prescribe an app we've seen there are some apps for instance to manage sleep disorders we talked about that already that are approved i think as a digital therapeutic so things like that yeah and they're, they're showing to be very effective but i guess to summarize this whole point is the digitalization within healthcare that has to a large degree already happened and continues to happen, it creates these massive opportunities that haven't really been realized yet, but probably within the next decade or so they they will. And that will change a lot of things. The second topic that I thought about was moving from the idea or expanding the idea of medical records to really be seen as health records. 
So individuals would be able to contribute to their own health records through, like we talked about, wearables, medical devices, etc. And that means that the scope of what we track and measure will expand far beyond the traditional clinical endpoints. Well, okay, but if you're saying that, what impact do you think that will have on, for instance, lifestyle medicine? I think that lifestyle medicine will become much more prominent because when we learn how to measure and quantify the impact of different lifestyle interventions in a much more systematic way, I think that's when we're going to really have the data to support which lifestyle interventions have an impact and even being able to compare that with the impact of, let's say, pharmaceuticals. You can actually measure that. And this actually, so you're completely right. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I took part, uh, I was present at the Royal College of General Practitioners in the UK. Their governing body had a, a prescribing lifestyle medicine course, which was run by Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. And it was really fascinating to see how they implemented uh, lifestyle medicine into the 10 minute consultation with a patient and it was radically different from how your normal 10 minute consultation they actually did a role play of how a normal consultation at your gp went and how a, a lifestyle medicine consultation would go what i thought was interesting about it is as well as being a step change in the way people view medicine both as a patient but also job satisfaction for a doctor to actually follow through on this you're going to need a completely different type of medical record so it goes mm. back to what you've talked about before is you need these health records and i don't believe this is going to be provided by the big uh, stodgy mainstay medical record companies that currently are in play uh, and i think that's really interesting because it opens the door to to new actors and some really interesting products are starting to come out in that field yeah so that will be very interesting to follow and see what happens there so that a lot of this comes from the large burden of chronic diseases doesn't it um, so one thing we were lucky enough to do was to go and have dinner with a guy called Lee Hood, who is uh, from Caltech, uh, an extremely famous scientist who actually set up a company called Arival in the US. And unfortunately, it didn't succeed. But the, the idea was there, which was, as you start to take these measurements, you can start to see disease transitions. So you can get to people before you could say you are diabetic, for example, you're a type two diabetic. And you can actually intervene at a much earlier stage. And it seems for all of these things that that actually what you shift towards is targeting aging rather than an individual disease. That's definitely true. And, and I think um, that, that kind of leads us in very nicely to our third topic, which is right now we focus on treating um, and also doing research on individual diseases, even age-related diseases. But we're not really targeting aging itself or the aging process and this is partly because aging is seen as something natural so aging in itself is not defined as a disease so what you'll find for instance if you go on to PubMed which is this huge database where you can find publications um, about medical research if you look at all the publications around certain diseases if you search for cancer or alzheimer's type 2 diabetes, uh, arthritis, cardiovascular disease, all these diseases, you'll find tens of the thousands. Four horsemen of the apocalypse. As yeah. well. <laughs> as you, you'll find tens of thousands of publications every year. But if you look at the research around aging, it's so limited right now. So what we're doing is that we're targeting these diseases individually, but they're all linked 
to one common problem, and that's the aging process in itself. Or at least all of them has are what we refer to as age-associated conditions. And what is becoming more evident is that a lot of these diseases, they share a common set of basic biological mechanisms, which is, you know, changes in metabolism, epigenetic changes, inflammation, etc. And so this is going to be, I think, really interesting when we start learning more about the aging process itself. And we think that the focus on that is going to shift. Yeah, you st- and you're starting to see companies pro- start to pop up who are actually producing products. I mean, a, a big one is the Prolon Fast Mimicking Diet, where they're actually going through randomized clinical trials now uh, to test its uh, its efficacy in, in the reversing or reducing the impacts of type 2 diabetes, uh, amongst other things. And I think they, if I'm correct, they actually have one where they're, so they're trying to target aging itself. Can you slow down? Yeah, I, th- I think it's the... It's the TAME trial where they're using metformin. Uh, I think that trial is actually a really interesting example because I read somewhere that they've actually, they got FDA approval, but they've really struggled to get the funding. So it got heavily delayed because again, aging is not really on the radar. Although the NIH now, uh, National Institute of Health in the US, they're actually focusing on aging they've got a whole website where they're talking about the experiments they're trying to set up to uh measure uh both what are the what are the measurements of aging and also what things can you do to to reverse it or slow it down yeah and probably a big game changer here is going to be finding a way to measure aging or biological aging we've talked about these concepts before yeah, we talked about it with sarah Hart Cron- yeah. and karolinska so, so even the first po- podcast guest we had on this show professor andrew scott he talked about biological versus chronological aging so chronological aging is how many years you are according to the calendar and biological aging is more how, how old your body is like if you're young for your age or if you're old for your age basically and Professor Sarah Haig from the Karolinska Institute that we spoke to earlier in this podcast season, she is doing research on different methods of measuring biological age. And what we talked about with her was that there is no standardized, validated, approved way of measuring biological age and sort of giving you a number on what your biological age is. But once that happens then I think it's going to explode the research around this. Well, what I thought was interesting was when we interviewed Dr. Rich um, Breeze Breeze, uh, from Lewisham Hospital, who was leading the intensive care unit during the coronavirus. And what he basically said is, you know, from a relatively crude method, they're using this to decide who actually gets intensive care and who doesn't. So they were taking on 80-year-olds who, prior to having COVID, were extremely healthy and functional, but saying no to 50-year-olds who who really, from a biological aging perspective, just had almost no quality of life even before they got COVID. So, you know, these decisions have an impact. People are making decisions about your biological age by proxy anyway. So uh, this is going to be a super interesting area to to keep an eye on, biological yeah. aging. So I think the fourth, uh, the fourth topic that we wanted to talk a little bit about is around behavioral science or behavioral economics and how that could be used within the area of health. Well, this goes back to, you know, this is one of my (laughs) areas of interest. And we covered some of the topic with Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy. 
Um, but I think uh, understanding behavioral science is going to have an enormous impact on this area called healthy care. And I'll give you one concrete example. So uh, if you could take someone's VO2 max, which is a measure of their cardiorespiratory fitness, for most people, unless you're a Tour de France cyclist or a triathlete, you probably don't give a shit <laughs> about this number. And you shouldn't, to be honest. But what that can tell you from something that you understand is amazing. So what that can do is I can, if you, if I knew what your VO2 max is, I could estimate at what point you would probably stop enjoying some form of exercise and whether you're enjoying exercise or not enjoying it is probably the best predictor of whether you're going to do it in the longer term. So what you can do is you can actually take these individuals, you can assess their level of fitness, and then you can actually start to design areas of their life um, and give them opportunities to go to events or to go to even holidays that they, you know that they would enjoy compared to just randomly following this kind of no pain, no gain mm. view, which, you know, I'm really ashamed that we were associated with that at some point when we at We Are Labs were, were helping out The Biggest Loser, because I think understanding behavioral economics and understanding how you can nudge people along to do things that are in their best interests is going to be fundamentally important for designing these consumer products related to healthcare. So rather than setting the expectation around no pain, no gain, is that there are actually things you could do that could be pleasurable, but you, you would still get value from it and you could still build your uh, physical fitness while yes, enjoying I mean, what you're doing. Exactly. And it's just, that's just one small example of how you could take a measurement of something that's quite abstract, but means something to a medic or to an exercise physiologist. And you can actually start to build a product for an individual so they wouldn't need to know what that number is they would just be able to experience something based on that number and i think the really important thing here is that all of these things what they all kind of combine to saying is when we start shifting from thinking only about healthcare as being disease management and we're starting to think about it as managing health in a way then your lifestyle becomes of course very important and so that does me mean that thinking about people's behavior and being able to manage that is going to be much more important because if you're thinking about maybe a more traditional approach where you have a disease that you treat it by taking a pill each morning, you wouldn't necessarily have to change the way you live your life or make any lifestyle interventions. But when you start moving into more the area of also making these lifestyle interventions, you need to do that in a way that make people sustain it, not just for a week or two, yeah. but for a longer period of time. And it's a good example of, of healthy care because to actually do that, you then start to need to um, use specialities that are relatively recent. So in medicine, we've hired in our company, uh, Dr. Kush uh, Joshi, who is a consultant in sports and exercise medicine. So he's a medical doctor. And this is a, spe a speciality that the, the British government has said they aim in the future to have learnings from elite level sport and also clinical practice brought to a much wider population. So you can start to practice this, what we again refer to as healthy care. And what's of course, again, interesting in is that a lot of the things that we focus on in terms of healthy care and those types of lifestyle interventions are also the things that seem to be slowing down the aging process or at least preventing you from an accelerated aging process. Mm. So it all it all links together there. 
And I think our fifth and the final topic that we were going to discuss a little bit today is the consumerization of healthcare or of health, I should say. Because I think one of the big shifts that we've already started to see actually in the healthcare industry is healthcare consumerism where patients or people in general, even consumers, maybe we should say, demand more of a retail-like buying experience. So you think about these things as telehealth, you want to be able to book an appointment quickly, be able to see available time slots. Um, People go to online pharmacies to order their drugs to their house instead of going out. We've also seen the market of direct-to-consumer tests, such as blood tests, that has increased quite a lot actually recently. Um, We mentioned one company, Modern Fertility, but there are loads of other companies as well. And we believe that this is going to achieve a high market traction in the coming decade. A recent example of this, I think, of course, is the demand for COVID-19 tests, for instance, the antibody tests. And this is an area where we've seen that people want to know, right? People want to know, but it also gives, gives a graphic demonstration of the challenges in this sector, you know, unreliable tests. What do you do with the results? All of this sort of thing that has to be worked through. And this is actually quite a big challenge because, as you say, it's not just getting the results, but it's understanding the results and knowing what to do with them. So having the right expectations and being provided with the right context. So normally within healthcare, your doctor wouldn't, sometimes they give you the results, sometimes they just give you the interpretation of it, but they can put it in context and help you with the next steps. So if you take this to a consumer market, there are lots of things to think about here, um, about how to how to manage the resulting and the interpretation of it and making sure that people have the context that they need yeah. around it. I, I think one just one slight risk around this consumerization of healthcare that is going to be interesting to to follow is, of course, that it could develop a certain behavior that people shop around uh, with easier access. You could think about a world where people basically go around until they find the information or the experience that they're looking for. And this could drive their healthcare professional behavior that you want to cater to what people want, maybe rather than what they need. Yeah, there is a definite risk of over medicalization, which is why I think it's quite important that you separate uh, the healthy care from from sick care, so, so, so to say. Because a lot of the interventions that you're using within healthy care, the impact that they have can be quite profound, but the, and the risks can actually be quite low. But, uh, but it, when you start mixing the two, it can probably be a recipe for, for some problems. Yeah, so the, the downside of improving your diet isn't necessarily that big. But of course, if you do have a proper disease, that needs to be managed by a doctor. Yeah. But if we get so if we just I mean summarize what we talked about so we talked about how telemedicine is going to change, uh, we talked about uh, medical records moving to health records, uh, how um, there's going to be a lot more of movement from actually interpreting the data and bring building it into an actual product that people understand. I'm still amazed that you you see how many healthcare new healthcare companies go AI this or AI that. I'm pretty sure no consumer gives a crap <laughs> about that. They want to know what problem it solves for them rather than uh, what what amazing words you use. We're definitely going to see a movement towards aging uh, and targeting aging rather than individual diseases. I'm very confident that we're going to see a lot more behavioral science entering into the market uh, around healthy care and obviously the consumerization. 
But I think if you think about these things that sound like broad topics, but what it infers is that they're going to have to be different types of medical records. Uh, you're going to have uh, different types of service. You're going to have to have different skill sets within medicine. Like we talked about sports and exercise medicine is just one of, uh, of a number of different ones that we view, you know, much more access to things like a lifestyle medicine, lifestyle medicine. You're going to have to have much more access to things like steep consultants, etc., cetera, uh, that are very hard to get hold of today. So I think it is actually a very, very broad change. Yeah, so it it's will exciting. be exciting to, exciting to follow. This season, we're releasing a new episode every other Tuesday. So if you haven't already done so, make sure that you subscribe to the What Does Good Look Like podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you have any questions, comments or feedback on the topics that we've discussed, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can reach us directly by email, podcast at meliohealth.com or if you make a post on social media, please tag us using hashtag WDGLL. And if you do like our podcast, please help spread the word. You can share episodes with friends and family directly from your podcast app or leave a rating or review to help even more people find us. Join us in discovering what good looks like so that you and your loved ones can stay younger for longer.